welcome to the Health Tech Podcast. Here we talk about everything healthcare and technology, and I'm your host, James Somaru. Hey everybody, I've got a great guest for you on the show today. I'm joined by Jason Foster, and he's the CEO of Ori Biotech. He's previously held leading roles in consulting, healthcare, and technology companies for nearly 20 years in the US, the UK, and Europe. He's also the founder and managing director of Health Equity Consulting, which is a healthcare growth consultancy. And he's a venture partner and a mentor at loads of different funds and accelerators, all in the health tech space. And his latest company that he's CEO of, Ori Biotech, they are a London and New Jersey-based innovator changing the game in cell and gene therapy manufacturing. They are doing some amazing stuff in this space with a lot of money that they have just raised. So without giving the game away too much, here's the episode with Jason. I hope you enjoy it. Just before we get into the interview, it's worth telling you guys that between recording that and where we are today, Ori Biotech raised a $30 million Series A, and that was led by North Palm Ventures with the likes of Octopus Ventures, who have been on this podcast, as well as Amadeus Capital, Dellen Ventures, and Kindred Capital investing too. So arguably, some of the best VCs in the world are in for Ori Biotech at the moment, which just gives you an idea of uh, how important and how exciting their technology is going to be. That takes the maximum total they've raised, sorry, to $40 million since they've uh, been going in 2015. They're going to get their platform to market around about late 2021, early 2022, but uh, you're going to hear plenty about what the platform is and what it does from Jason in this uh, in this episode. So I hope you guys enjoy it. Jason, welcome to the Health Tech Podcast. How are you doing this morning, mate? Thanks, James. Yeah, doing great. Thank you. Uh, enjoying the last bit of summer here in the UK. I know, right? A bit of Indian summer, hopefully. Uh, whereabouts yeah. are you speaking to us from today, Jason? Uh, Northwest London. So Lovely. I've, despite despite my American accent, I've lived in uh, <laughs> I was going to say, that's so. very confusing for the listeners. Um, <laughs> yeah, I've lived here for the last 11 years, but uh, I guess I'll always sound like this, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> or fortunately, you know. Um, cool, man. So obviously you and I know each other really well. We've known each other for years. And uh, yeah, see, you, I suppose you've seen me do various bits in the space, although you've been relatively consistent with a, albeit with a brand new gig recently, which we're definitely going to talk about. But yeah, man, it'd be great for you to tell our listeners a bit of your story. Sure. Yeah, no, um, I think uh, when I say I've been doing this for 20 years, it makes me sound incredibly old. But, um, <laughs> I, guess it, I guess it has been 20 years. So I started out out of uni, um, went to work uh, in Washington, D.C. in politics uh, and actually working in the public side of healthcare. Uh, I worked for the the committee in Congress that regulated healthcare and learned a lot about the field there. I don't um, think I knew that about you. Yeah. Well, we haven't gone back that far. No, know? I don't think we have. <laughs> like five years, not for 20. Um, but yeah, so that was my first, first exposure to that. And uh, actually in that stint, I, I was a lobbyist for a little bit of time after that uh, lobbying for big pharma companies and hospital systems in the U S on issues like organ transplantation and lots of other wow. interesting uh, types of issues. Um, loved healthcare, but didn't love the politics uh, or the, you know, the sausage making, as they say in the, yeah. in the legislative process, it's pretty ugly uh, in the way things actually happen. And what I learned in that, uh, in that uh, stint was really, it was the private sector that was driving change and driving mm-hmm. progress. Uh, so went back to business school uh, to get my MBA to kind of make a switch into the business side of healthcare, uh, and that was 
that was the right decision, although my timing probably could have been better. Actually, I moved to New York City uh, and started business school three weeks before 9-11, uh, which made wow. it a very unusual time uh, to be uh, there. Uh, but, um, you know, it was interesting because New York didn't have a reputation of being a very welcoming place. But uh, it was a unique time there. You know, we kind of pulled together as a community. And yeah, definitely. A positive experience. But uh, made my way through Columbia for those two years uh, and popped out the other side into Merck, uh, the big pharma company. Uh, they owned a PBM, a pharmacy benefit manager uh, in the US, which at the time was called Merck Medco. Uh, and then it became Medco Health Solutions. Then uh, it was bought by Express Scripts. Um, and these are the types of companies that, you know, in the US, you need a, a little plastic card that you take in with you to the pharmacy so they know how much to, your, your copay is right. you know, and administers your, your pharmacy benefit. In the UK, it's kind of a foreign concept, but um, <clears throat> essentially provides coverage for drugs. Uh, so started learning about kind of the managed care system in the US, which is incredibly complex, um, about how people get coverage, mostly through their employer uh, is how it's done, unless you've got Medicare, Medicaid. Um, and stayed there for a couple of years, um, ended up, uh, moving back to my hometown, Richmond, Virginia from New York, uh, to work in my first, uh, real kind of pure play pharma role as a pharma brand manager, uh, for a company that was part of Record Bank Keezer, the big household goods company, which people, it's actually a UK based company. People in the UK, all know them for their brands like Gaviscon and uh, Dettol and oh, yeah. French's Mustard and some of these things. <laughs> uh, but at that point, they had a fledgling specialty pharma business, uh, which was wow. focused in kind of two unique areas, niche areas in pain and uh, opioid dependence, actually. So addiction to opioid uh, oh. uh, opioids. And at that point, there were only a few of us in that business. Uh, and between that was this was now in 2006. Uh, early 2006. And between 2006 and 2010, uh, we grew that business from kind of five of us on the management team uh, to 400 people uh, in the US Whoa. and a billion in revenue, uh, which was fantastic. A great experience for me. One of those where you get to kind of color outside the lines and do a lot of different things. Yeah. And learn a huge amount. Um, and then running in the run up to 2010, uh, they asked me, hey, Jason, you want to go do it over again in Europe and try and help us set up a business <laughs> there? And uh, I was, my wife was five months pregnant. I just bought a house. And I said, sure, that sounds like a great idea. Let's move to London. <laughs> uh, so luckily, I didn't get divorced. Uh, and we did move <laughs> to, to London um, and set up the business here in, in the UK and Europe. Again, there were kind of three or four of us in the beginning. And that, that business grew to about 200 people, uh, 250 million in turnover. Whoa. Um, so I had kind of, you know, two startup experiences in, in one company, which was, which was interesting. Um, mm. and in two different geographies, obviously the healthcare systems in the U S and, and Europe are incredibly different. Um, and you know, as American coming into Europe, we Americans aren't known for our subtlety, uh, so you, kind of, <laughs> you know, you got to turn your mouth off and turn your ears on and, and you know, do a lot of, do a lot of listening and. It was great. You know, I, I loved it. You know, you won every you won, one week we'd be go from Madrid to, to Munich uh, to Milan. And, you know, this really interesting uh, time uh, for me to learn and to really experience different, different, different cultures and different uh, healthcare systems. Sure. Uh, so that was kind of uh, 10, 2010. And then um, in 2012 ish, 
I took over as a general manager uh, for Northern Europe at that point, which was 10 countries, um, had a team of 40 people, P&L of about $50 million in revenue, um, which was my first, you know, kind of general management role, which was great. Um, you know, because I had sort of grown up in marketing. I had concentrated in marketing at Columbia. Yeah. Um, and gone through that kind of brand management uh, marketing track. Um, and then, you know, general management's a whole different ballgame. You know, you've got obviously multifunctional responsibility and looking at regulatory and looking at medical and looking at, of course, the financial aspects of the business. So it was a great training ground. And um, about 2000, and I think it started in 14, um, we started looking to spin that business out of Reckitt Bank Keezer, out of its parent company. At that mm. point, uh, the business had grown substantially. It was doing multi-billions in revenue. Um, it was an enormously profitable business compared to FMCG, you know, compared to Dettol and some of these household sure. goods, Spanish and Finnish that have, you know, lower margins. Pharmaceutical products, as you know, have quite high margins. Um, so the business made sense to be a standalone. Uh, so in, I'll never forget, December 23rd, we, uh, we spun the business out as a Divier. And so now it's listed on the LSE. Uh, it was a multi-billion, $2.5 I think, uh, enterprise value listing. Uh, for the business. And um, yeah, that was a culmination of like 10 years hard work. At that point, we were 1,100 people around the world in 30, in 30 countries. Um, so yeah, great, great experience. And you know, one of those, you know, when I tell it in retrospect, it all sounds very pl well planned and very, you know, sort it of does, mate. It uh, does. One, it one trajectory. <laughs> uh, but uh, there's a roller coaster in there that, uh, that, that certainly is the reality <laughs> of building, building a business. Um, so. Yeah, no. So I don't know if there's anything specific I, you want me to go into more there, but uh, you know. I'm interested in the, I'm I'm interested in the quick growth, and I'm interested. I suppose I mean the question I've written down here is what did you learn about scaling a business? And I think the reason that I ask that is because I think in health tech at the minute, as you know, and I'm sure we'll come on to the rest of your background in a second. We we're seeing companies a lot now at kind of in health tech. The space is maturing somewhat. We're seeing a lot of companies at kind of Series A, I think. And you know, a lot of people, a lot of those are trying to raise Series B and go on this kind of epic scale bit. And so I know there's a lot of companies, you know, dawning on this now. I'm interested in, I suppose, being in pharma. It's not a million miles away from health, particularly the way the way things are going with digital therapeutics and stuff. But how hard is it to scale a company? in healthcare, pharma, et cetera, from, like you said there, you know, five people to hundreds? Um, it's really hard. <laughs> it's really hard <laughs> to get right. Um, oh, let's move on. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The answer, that's the, that's the short answer. What's um, hard about, what are the hardest elements? Um, I mean, I think, you know, it's, and it's even harder, you know, I mean, I would link pharma more to kind of pure play health. And when you blend health yeah. and health tech, uh, you know, technology has a certain expectation of the trajectory, you know, from yes. investors, from entrepreneurs, you know, you see these kind of crazy scale stories for pure yes. play tech businesses. And it's true. Like, the expectations is like SaaS models, isn't it? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I want some of that. How do I do that? And yeah. I think the reality, the reality of healthcare and, and maybe other regulated industries as well. Um, it's just, it's just harder. It takes longer. There's, you know, my, my kind of thesis on this is that there's inertia built into the healthcare system that keeps it from changing too fast. Yes. Uh, because if we change too fast, potentially we put people's lives at risk. So there's this sort yeah. of, yeah, there's this sort of kind of uh, inertia to keep it what kind of as it is and to change in sort of incrementally. And so, it, you know, this idea of disrupting healthcare from the outside in, 
I think is a misnomer. You know, you really have to partner internally with the industry, with healthcare, with healthcare systems, uh, and help them evolve. Uh, and that's, that just takes longer. You know, there's yeah. this kind of shorthand, as you know, in the UK, having done a lot of work with the NHS, you know, death by pilot and, <laughs> um, you know, it's yeah. partnering with, uh, NHS organizations. You know, people think about the national health service. Uh, there is no NHS. There is no national health service. Mm. There's 10,000 payers in the UK health system. Um, each has their own priorities, their own agendas, their own funding streams. So you really have to understand, you know, what's what's below the <coughs> below the surface, and that's I think a little bit of why. why I suppose you're grounding in politics, almost kind of. Uh... I don't know. I don't know if it prepares you, but it certainly gave you access to a, a, also a slow moving world and also healthcare is very political. And so I suppose you, you did bring at least some knowledge and some skills from that too, because I suppose there are young kids that are, you know, graduating college or university that, that are, you know, expecting that SAS play and, and, you know, expecting it to apply to health. But I suppose you've, you've seen it all in a way to, to know that there is a dose of realism that needs to be applied. Yeah, there is a, there is some advantage to being old, I guess. Uh, you've, seen, you've seen it before, but you know, I was an operator in the two thousand uh, dot com bust. You know, my very first startup, which we didn't actually talk about, was a stint. But before business school, uh, I did a politically oriented startup, which was kind of unhealth related, but uh, it blew up fantastically in, in wow. two thousand. Um, and then I was again an operator in Indivir in two thousand uh, two thousand eight, uh, and during that period, so you sort of see these things and you say, okay, this is kind of, I, this feels similar, you know, this kind of mm. muscle memory of, you know, I understand the the boom and bust of, of you know, the sky is falling and everything's different now, uh, <laughs> but that's not actually the way it works. You know, I think, you know, this current COVID induced. I was going to say, uh, is this familiar territory now then? A, a little bit, you know, it feels a little bit familiar. And, you know, one of the big questions for me coming out of this is, you know, how, how many of these changes, you know, they're saying we've gotten 10 years of change in, in six months which, you know, no doubt is true. Um, but I, I think I, how long do we need to stay in this newly changed world for it to stick is a yes. big question that's in my mind right now and not just kind of revert back to, to old. Uh, yeah, that old is interesting. Working. So I actually asked that question to two behavioral scientists the other day on a mm. panel. Mm. And mm. what they said was that really it actually depends how useful the changes are to real life so actually if the change so take telemedicine for example if we do genuinely feel and believe that telemedicine is now better as a first time triage tool than calling up your gp then actually or primary care physician if you're in the us that's actually going to be what sticks and what they said is that it seems to feel at the moment like the questions being asked in a genuine way for the first time so rather than it being a kind of some people say yes but they're the young tech savvy people at least the question is now being asked but even they said you know trying to predict human behavior at kind of national level is like trying to predict the weather in like four years time it's just like pretty impossible until <laughs> we actually watch it yeah. play out so um but anyway yeah. so yeah, no, your... it's I, I was yeah, going to say, I, I didn't answer the question you asked really, which is kind of how hard is it to scale? And yeah. I think the, because of those, the context of healthcare, um, you know, the ultimately every business, you know, and I look at it as an investor now, you know, which we'll come on to, but um, every business is an execution play. You know, yeah. it's, you can have the best strategy in the world, uh, but if you don't execute and execute within time and within budget, 
um, then you know you start to lose faith of the of your investors. You start to lose faith of your partners. It becomes even more difficult, even if your employees. So really, execution, you know, communication, these kinds of core skill sets that are universal, you know, regardless of what, yeah. what type of business you're running, are, are critical. Uh, and you know, we always used to say, uh, our CEO used to say that uh, uh, we were building the ship while we were sailing it. You know, mm. it's a little bit of that. You know, it's it's kind of you just just make a decision and go. You know, run fast. You can you can adjust as you run, um, but don't don't spend too long trying to overthink it because no one really knows the right answer, right? You, you've Definitely. got a gut feeling. It's your business. You know the market. Um, make a decision. Run hard at that. And if you need to tweak it, you tweak it. But what often times happens is people just spend too much money and too much time sort of navel gazing, like you know, looking internally. Not enough time really out in the market, talking to customers, talking to partners, and then executing. Uh, so so well. true. So so many so many good concepts in there. I mean, particularly. Yeah, just not standing still. I think it, it's it's easy to say, and I think it's easy to get paralyzed by choice, and it's easy to get paralyzed almost by opportunity as well. And I think in health tech, there is a lot of opportunity. There are a lot of directions people can go, and it can be paralyzing, but you're absolutely right. I think being able and having the the skill, but also I suppose just the cojones, if I will, to just go and, and live and die by the sword. That is what you need to do as a leader. And seemingly you did it and you did it in a profitable way, which is, which is very interesting and different to a lot a of little bit uh, unusual. <laughs> venture funded models at the moment where you're relying on kind of throwing everything into it again, like, as you say, running hard and, and hoping that the business model corrects itself in future, but you did it profitably and you floated, which is awesome and incredible experience, which then I suppose led you into the next phase, which was investing, right? Exactly. Yeah. So, um, you know, when you grow to a publicly listed 1100 person business, it's a very different world than, you know, five or 10 of you in, the, in an office, you know, mm. bootstrapping and running fast. So, you know, what I learned about myself during that kind of 10, 11 year journey was, you know, I really like the early phases, the building phases and where you can really feel like you're having a big impact and you're moving fast and it's exciting. And, um, so I wanted to kind of get back to that and uh, ended up leaving in Divier, uh in the middle of 2016. I'm not 100% sure what the next step held, uh, to be yeah. honest. Um, got involved with, uh, just wanted to kind of get involved in the innovation ecosystem, uh, in London in particular, kind of, as you know, very vibrant, even, you know, 2016 wasn't that long ago and even more yeah. vibrant today. Um, uh, but the kind of started meeting, uh, you know, accelerators, uh, started meeting entrepreneurs, investors, uh, in the London, Oxford, Cambridge triangle, um, started doing a bit of mentoring with, uh, start with accelerators like Techstars, like Entrepreneurs First, like uh, Startup mm. Bootcamp, um, just to kind of get myself embedded. I mean, it was all kind of pro bono um, to just really start to build the networks, educate myself, because, you know, building a business in pharma is very different than sort of broader health tech. It's a bit, it, it's related, but not the same. So educating myself more about, uh, you know, health and technology and about uh, the way the uh, the healthcare system works in the UK, you know, the NHS was yeah. one of our customers at Indivier, but, you know, buying a, a SaaS platform is very different than, than buying pharmaceuticals. So really there was a kind of process there. Uh, also during that time started uh, my own consultancy business to advise uh, investors and startups on mostly commercial strategy. Uh, I alluded to it just a minute ago to say most of the founders that I met during that time and even today, 
uh, as you'll know, are either clinical or technical. You know, in the health tech space, they come from a domain expertise. You know, they're either looking at it from a technology perspective or they're looking at it from a clinical perspective. Uh, very rarely uh, would they have any kind of operational or commercial experience. Yes. On the team. Um, and so tried to lend that value where I could um, and worked with some very large companies, you know, PE back companies mm. uh, and, you know, the a man and his dog in a garage kind of startups. <laughs> um, and that, you know, that was great experience at that point for me. Uh, and then the kind of third leg of the stool for me was in investing. I started angel investing at that time. Um, there's something that kind of clarifies the mind and, you know, aligns incentives by putting your own capital at risk. Um, yes. so, you know, going, getting sort of in bed with, if you'll excuse the phrase with, uh, with entrepreneurs in their businesses. <laughs> um, and yeah, so that's kind of how I got started in the investment field and in the kind of entrepreneurship post uh, my experience at Indivier and that's kind of extended from 2016 uh, till today. Uh, and then now I've come almost full circle in my latest role with Ori, as you know. Yeah. And before we talk about that, I just want to talk about one thing that you mentioned there about the, the flipping mindset for when you're actually putting your own capital in. And, you know, you and I have seen many, many, many pitches from entrepreneurs and I almost wish that that is an exercise that they would do before coming to pitch is almost like imagine that you literally had 50 K would you be putting it into a, into your, into your pitch? Would you put this into yourself <laughs> like right yeah, now? If yes. you just, if you just delivered that, because you're absolutely right. And I don't mean that in a pejorative way. I mean that in a, in a very constructive way in the sense that, you know, for those people listening that might be in that position, when, when you think like that, it does completely change your mindset because I've been in those conversations, you know, extremely recently when, you know, I'm embarking on that and and thinking, you know, could I start doing this? And I've been looking at pitches from an accelerator point of view, you know, a very protected position, employed, you know, an employee looking at all these different things. You know, you look at it, I realize now in an extremely different way than if you're thinking about putting your own cash in. It really changes how you view the timelines, the likelihood of success, it changes the questions that you ask even, I've noticed. And so I almost think for those people listening, if you can run your pitches by anybody that could put money in, including yourself, you might end up with some learning points that can uh, certainly push you and your pitch forwards, definitely. I mean, I don't know if, what, what was the first thing you invested in? Can you remember? Uh, that is a great question. Actually, I think it was grippable. Um, which is a oh, business really? that, I, that I've followed on with and uh, sit on the board of now. But yeah, that was uh, two and a half years ago at this point. Amazing. So, yeah, Imperial Spinner. I don't know. Do you know Paul, the CEO of Grip? I don't know. I don't know them, no, like in, yeah. individually, but obviously, you know the company. God, that's a good but hit rate, mate. One for one. Yeah. <laughs> but they're. Uh, they're Just stop there, mate. You could have, uh, so that, yeah, you could exactly. have raised a PE house on that. <laughs> 100% record. <laughs> there you go. Um, but yeah, no, I think your point is, is very well taken in that, you know, one of the first questions I asked entrepreneurs and still do when uh, I'm evaluating their business is have you put your own cash in or has your mother, father, grandmother, aunt put yes. those cash in? Because if you're not willing to put your family's money at risk, then I don't know that I'm willing to put my money at risk. Yes. Um, and that is, it's a key inflection point. You're right. I mean, that, that is, you know, it's, it's a, for the entrepreneur, I think it takes it to a new level of seriousness. Um, if you're, you know, you've got friends and family investing and they're relying on you not to lose their money. 
Um, so also, in a way as well, it says something about the way you're able to market what you do if you can get your friends and family on board. Because almost that, I mean, that is that is quite a, a, a decent barrier. I mean, yes, there'll be some kind of altruism of friends and family perhaps putting money in from that perspective. But I, I actually think, in a lot of ways, it might even be harder to get that money in, in in this in in a sense. But at least if there's proof that they have there's an element that they're able to market to somebody at least. And it is a proof of the ability to fundraise to a point. So I think it is still a, a decent, a decent proof point, friends and family money that probably isn't talked about enough. Actually. I don't think I've really addressed that many times on this podcast, but yeah, without dwelling on that too much, mate, we might come back to it later, but I'm interested obviously to talk about Ori because this is you now putting a foot back into the space as an operator. And so how did this come about? Well, my lead investor in Ori said I lost my mind, uh, but you know, <laughs> that, that, that could have been part of it. But uh, I was kind of merrily investing, as we said. I think I've got a portfolio now of maybe 12 or 14 different startup businesses, yeah. um, sitting on a couple of boards of those companies uh, advising. Um, and, you know, so that's a, that's a great point to be at. Uh, but met the, the founding team of Ori Biotech in the middle of 2018, um, and they're a business that is in cell and gene therapy manufacturing technology. So there's this huge new generation of treatments for mostly for cancer, uh, but for lots of other diseases as well, uh, that actually represent incredible clinical benefit. So you've, you, I know you know about CAR-T therapy. Yeah. Um, and this is a totally new generation of medicine that starts with a patient's material, a patient's cells. They basically reprogram the cells so they can find the cancer, uh, which is incredible. They take the patient's cells, they freeze them usually, they send them somewhere for processing. In a couple of weeks' time, they are reinfused back into the patient, uh, and that those cells now, those T cells, can now find the cancer where they couldn't before, uh, which is absolutely incredible that it's even possible. Um, and these represent, you know, a cure for many patients, many refractory patients who've been through treatment, you know, through chemo, through a transplant, didn't have any uh, good results. And, you know, these people have, you know, weeks, probably not months to live. And this is a late stage uh, treatment right now um, that uh, a very large proportion of them have a good clinical outcome and some of them are cured of cancer. Um, absolutely incredible. Um, the big, you know, there's 1,500 clinical trials going on in cell and gene therapy today, uh, globally, studying all forms of cancer. Um, so the, the approved products today mostly focus on liquid tumors, so leukemia and the like. Uh, but there's a huge body of work happening uh, in solid tumors, so solid tumor lung cancer, pancreatic cancer, ovarian cancer. These are uh, types of cancer that don't have very good treatments uh, and not very good prognoses, as you know, uh, if you get diagnosed with them. Um, so it represents a whole new new kind of, uh, field of treatment. Um, and the biggest challenge today is that these products are very, very hard to manufacture. Uh, they're very expensive, uh, and they're very uh, highly variable uh, in quality. And, and because of that, they're, they're very low throughput. So these are kind of manual processes. They're kind of a, you know, an academic lab process on steroids often, um, where maybe you can produce a couple, you know, tens of doses or hundreds of doses, maybe uh, in a professional process, thousands of doses. Um, so, you know, uh, from a layman's perspective, <clears throat> it's just an unacceptable outcome to have cures for cancer that patients can't get access to. Um, and that's really the, the reality of today and the near future, unless, you know, we find a, a way to bring these uh, products to market at scale. And that's the mission for Ori. Um, just was really enthused by the opportunity the, to make a huge, have a huge impact on patients um, 
you know, the management, uh, the founding team of this business is uh, incredibly well experienced, you know, been in cell and gene therapy for kind of 40 years between them. Um, and again, it was two kind of uh, very knowledgeable academic technical founders, uh, clinical founders. And I thought maybe I could add a bit of, of operational and commercial expertise. So when I met the team, I offered to invest uh, as an angel at first and took them out uh, to meet some of my investor network. Uh, here in London, we were able to raise a seed round last August uh, of 7 million sterling uh, for the business uh, led by a couple of well-known uh, VC funds here in the UK, Amadeus Capital, Kindred, uh, Delane Ventures, some of the guys you know. Um, and then this is when my lead investor said I lost my mind. I, I offered not only to uh, to contribute my financial capital, but my human capital as well, um, <laughs> and became CEO of that business last uh, last July. The most valuable capital of all, which is your time. And I think mm-hmm. the the interesting thing there for me, Matt, well, there's, there's multiple interesting things there for me, but... I think overall, it's as you tell that story, whether perhaps it's your marketing background, I don't know, but that story's easy to follow and it's it makes it makes so much sense, i.e. that when chemotherapy fails for patients, they have to have this incredible as you say, incredible therapy that this is even a thing, the way where they're their cells are taken from them, reprogrammed. I assume white cells, T cells, etc. They're reprogrammed mm-hmm. to find cancer, yeah. which again is just anyway. And then they're put back into the patient to then seek out and, I suppose, destroy that cancer. I mean that that's that's like the stuff out of science fiction that that is actually going on. Yeah, it's incredible. It's even possible. Uh, and yeah. it's, you know, it's 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 quote unquote new science uh, that's been you know. 20 or 30 years in the making as many times these things are. Yeah. Um, and you know, these kinds of, of approaches, whether it's CAR T or uh, till therapy or NK cells, or there's a huge number of different approaches, different cells that are being looked at. Yeah. But at this point, they all involve starting with patient material uh, and what they call autologous therapy. So it means, you know, it's truly personalized medicine. We take that patient yeah. cells, we manufacture them and they're only good for that patient. You can't yes. go into another patient. Uh, and so it, it represents incredibly kind of nuanced challenges to the supply chain. You think about, yes. you know, stamping out millions of tablets is a very, very different uh, and even, you know, big vats of biologic, pro- you know, um, antibody processes for biologics it's just a totally different animal uh, and that's really where the well, you're actually right and, comes in. yeah and going i'm mean, supposed to basic principles as you just said there even with supply chain etc when you're stamping out pills the same arguably the same cost to serve one patient could serve millions when you're just printing out paracetamol do you know what i mean so yeah arguably then the challenge becomes how do we make this cheaper how do we make this able to serve more patients and give those patients time and life back keeping it real and it sounds like that's where you guys fit in right there's a i mean absolutely there's a fantastic story um so bruce levine is an advisor to the business who actually invented kim Raya and his labs at upenn um right. and carl june kind of run that lab um but he one of his very first patients you know, was a girl called emily whitehead uh, and her parents were, had, she had come to the end of the road, basically. And her parents on that day were looking at hospice for her uh, mm. and did one last Google search uh, to see 
if there was any other, you know, anything else out there. Uh, and they came upon the clinical trial for Kimriah that had just opened up, uh, which was at uh, the Children's Hospital of, of uh, Philadelphia. Uh, enrolled her in the trial, and literally now, I think eight or ten years later, uh, she's totally cured of cancer. Um, those kinds of stories are incredible. You should look at there's a YouTube video with Bruce talking to her dad about it. And it's just, it's, I mean, literally you're bawling watching it. It's just so Jeez. emotional. But what's her name? Um, Emily. Emily Whitehead. Emily. And they've started a foundation. I mean, it's an incredible story. But this is the promise of these therapies. I mean, yeah. this is the kind of revolutionary impact it could have. And this is why you know I felt compelled to get involved with the business and try and help out because you know. Uh, having this incredible yeah. science available, but not not really reaching patients is just you know it's a, it's an untenable outcome. You know, I I've read and seen a lot recently about meaning is what keeps people alive and what keeps them living and 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 literally gives their life meaning, right? And I suppose when you're looking at this company to invest in as an angel and you're looking at it thinking, well, they could actually be improved by this and I could actually add significant value to them and help them on their journey to achieve this by doing this. I mean, it makes sense to me then and now that, that that's something that you then do with all the skills that you've got and all the ability that you've got to then push this into reality because it, again, you come from a background of, seeing business models and seeing them work you come from a background of profitable businesses you come from you know background of farmer and seeing these types of things work and so you clearly have an interest in technology as well because even when you floated the company you then moved into health tech and seeing you know how it could affect patients more directly and and more technology and that kind of i suppose more fun end of of of, of things but this seems to blend it all right it's got the technology element. It's got practical problems to solve in how do you take a really complex process and expensive process and make it cheaper. It's got everything really. And it must, it, I don't know. It just, it, it seems exciting. <laughs> it seems exciting to me. You've um, it's super exciting. Yeah. No, yeah. I mean, it, it's one of those things you want to, you want to be excited when you wake up in the morning to go to work. And, you know, I think I joke about sort of not, you know, when I met, the, the co-founders of the business that I wasn't looking for a full-time job, you know, it's, it's yeah. kind of a cushy lifestyle being in an, an angel investor <laughs> and an AD. And, it's what everyone's you know, thinking that's listening. Exactly. Right? <laughs> <laughs> being an operator is hard. Like, you know, it's, uh, it's hard on this side of the table, but you know, certainly the fact that I sit on both sides of the investment table now, mm. you know, as an angel and have done, you know, it gave me a lot of, it gives me a lot of appreciation for mm operators and how hard it is and how hard they work. Um, and also, you know, the insight into the, the mindset of investors, you know, what they're looking for, uh, what, what kinds of risks they want to take, um, you know, what their incentives are. These are important sure. things for entrepreneurs to know as they're pitching investors and, and looking for investment. And so just put some meat on the bones for us in terms of what the product actually is. So can you describe what, 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 yeah, exactly what the product is basically? Sure. So Ori's is a, is a full stack platform. So it combines hardware, software, and a data platform to essentially manufacture these products at scale. So today, the, these products cost half a million to $2 million a patient, roughly. Uh, the cost of goods are about roughly half that. Um, so incredibly expensive products. Um, and in order for these to become you know, widely accessible, we have to drive those costs down. So um, it's essentially, it's an advanced, you know, bioreactor fluid handling system because you're, you're genetically reprogramming cells uh, and you're growing them to a target amount of them, target cell number, before then you uh, want to reinfuse them back in a patient. And you have, right now that's done in 
essentially cell culture bags and you know lots of academic processes manual you know moving cells around a process sure. uh, so it's just not scalable it's not scalable it's very expensive and, and it's very uh, low throughput uh, so our platform essentially you know the, I, i'm not a scientist so i like a kind of layman's example which is you know today the, the industry is kind of uh, henry ford building one model t at a time in our workshop mm-hmm. that's kind of the the process uh, and we need ori represents an opportunity to move to kind of assembly line manufacturing that will increase throughput, throughput, increase quality and decrease costs. Uh, that's ultimately the goal for us. And, you know, success for me looks like, you know, if we can drive cost of goods down by 80%, uh, we can do, you know, hopefully make these products much more widely available uh, and move them earlier in the treatment pathway so that patients don't have to get to the, to the very end of the line before they can benefit from them. Yeah, and I think for the for the people that might be visually orientated learners or understanders that are listening, the way that I've seen, because Jason kindly sent me a deck that I've had a look through, is that if you can imagine taking someone's cells and then reprogramming them, you need a lot of stuff. You need a big lab. You need a lot of vials. You need a lot of bags. You need a lot of different types of fluids. You need to transport them from A to B. You need to mix them with each other. You need blood. You need that. There's so much that you need and it's very manual in the way that it's done. But I suppose the, and that's what I picked here. I, I and, and you've, you know, Jason's kind of showing me these photos of that's how labs work at the moment. And I suppose what, what you do jason and correct me that i'm wrong if 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 you shall but that kind of i don't know what you call it i suppose a, a volume the size of a room of equipment is then moved in sort of the volume the size of like a microwave i suppose it's like how i'd like very uh layman's terms put it but and that allows you to scale it which i think really kind of demonstrates the opportunity when you think of moving these kind of treatments at scale is going to require the business model to work and it's and it can't cost two million a patient for every patient if we're going to save lots of lives with this stuff and so at a very practical level that huge volume of equipment has to be shrunk but it also has to get better i suppose and so do you want to (laughs) just sorry for this do you want to describe that little microwave to me or to the audience (laughs) What the hell goes on um, in the microwave? Yeah. Um, it, as much as, you know, a little bit of this proprietary, of course, but um, I think the, the, the kind of basic uh, analogy is, you know, today in a cell culture process, you've got, you know, bags or other kinds of mostly single use bioreactors. Uh, but ultimately you have a lot of very expensive staff, uh, staff that are moving yeah. Uh, cells or other parts of the process through and that involves tube welding and they essentially are moving fluids around Uh, and this is you know we as human beings uh, despite how you know regardless of how expert we are we cause variability in processes as you know Uh, and we're expensive resources you know to be moving cells around or you know tube welding or whatever it takes so essentially the a lot of the the expense is the human inter the human uh interaction the need for human operators uh, and also very very large facilities because of the the need for space and these for these people to move around and develop these processes um you know companies are investing in kind of football pitch size you know 150,000 square feet facilities uh spending 150 million dollars in 3 years building them uh and can only throughput you know a couple thousand doses so, you know, really it's just a hugely, I mean, it, it's the best, it's the standard today and it's the best we've got today. Um, but it's a hugely efficient 
use of capital uh, yeah. at the moment. So the, the goal is, you know, if you're able to shrink that process down, uh, do a lot of those manual steps in uh, potentially like a single use consumable, um, then you can intensify the, the manufacturing footprint. So shrink that football pitch f- uh, facility, size facility down to maybe the size of one clean room. You know, if you can get a couple thousand doses through one clean room, that would hugely uh, improve the economics of these of these medications for therapy developers. And ultimately, you know, as you know, I mean, you know, therapies, uh, pharmaceutical companies and others aren't going to continue investing in things that ultimately they can't make money on. I mean, these are businesses, right? So, you know, $9 billion was invested last year alone in selling gene therapy. So, I mean, it's a huge area of investment for, for the field. Uh, but you hear, you know, the Wall Street analysts and others saying, is this ever going to be a profitable endeavor? You know, are, you know, Gilead and Novartis and some of the other companies that have pioneered this field going to be able to make money on these things? And it's still an open question. You know, at, at, as you said, at $2 million a patient, it's going to be very difficult. Um, but <clears throat> if we can drive those costs of good down, drive prices down, help increase the number of patients who can be treated, um, then there's certainly a viable business model for, for cell and gene therapies. Uh, and that's really where the, the direction in which the industry is pushing. And that's where it gets exciting because then you're back round full circle talking about impact and it becomes really tangible when you're talking about dropping that cost to a point where then people can just afford to be treated. And I think there's, yeah, it's, it's, it's not, it's a nice story to tell almost that we can go fully background now to saying, well, the unit economics then ends up working for more people. We can then cure more people of cancer people then end up going back to their lives and having these moments with their families and all those different things. And it becomes very tangible and very real, which at scale gets super exciting. And I suppose when you're impact driven, which most of us in health tech are, right? I mean, the amount of people on this podcast that I talk about that are impact driven is, is unbelievable that it always sort of lands back at this, but yeah, it's no surprise to me that you've uh, stepped back in as an operator, mate, to be perfectly honest. No, it's a super exciting field to be involved in. And um, absolutely. I mean, you know, having a purpose and and the ability to impact millions of patients. I mean, 10 million people die a year of cancer. 10 million is a huge number. Um, You know, we can impact that positively. That's a great, that's a great outcome. Uh, And, you know, I think, you know, it's, um, you know, as a, an opportunity to grow a business and, uh, and, you know, we need to provide a return to our investors and, yeah. Um, we just closed our, our series A round a couple of weeks ago with some great investors from the US and the UK. So very exciting time for us. Amazing. And just out of interest, what to conclude on this, my kind of last question then is that given that's the product and you're shrinking all of that manufacturing and equipment and process and human capital, et cetera, you're shrinking that and automating that to to help the process of the creation of these cell and gene therapies who is the customer for you ultimately we'll be partnering with uh therapeutics developers uh, so you know kind of next generation both big pharma companies that have an interest in this area uh, but also kind of the next generation of, of therapy developers uh with cdmos who are doing contract manufacturing for those types of organizations and also the academic research centers so the kind of md anderson's the yeah, Memorial Sloan Kettering's, um, you know, Parker Institute, um, Royal Free Hospital here in the UK. So there's a bunch of different folks ah, that are interested in this area um, that will be 
trying to help enable their processes to essentially reach reproducibility yeah. and scalability. Amazing. Um, and just before you go, Jason, I just want to get your advice or I suppose, yeah, I suppose advice for our listeners, advice for me even about what, what you're up to on the investment side of the table. So there's obviously the future of biotech here and different things that you must be looking at and deals from that perspective. There's obviously health tech as well, because you're clearly interested in it and, and doing deals there from the investor side of what you do, what are you looking at at the moment? What are you interested in? Where are the areas that you think are showing the most promise? Obviously, aside from biotech manufacturing, which sounds like you're well <laughs> on your way to um, protecting your own investment almost. <laughs> but um, yeah, tell me what else you're looking at. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you know, the context of kind of how healthcare moves, um, I think is good, good context for this particular part of the discussion in that, you know, you see, uh, you, you referenced SaaS earlier, and you see SaaS as a very well-invested well invested thesis outside of healthcare. You know, software is eating the world, Andrews and Horowitz, and Salesforce, yeah. and every, everything's a SaaS model now. Everybody wants to be profit <laughs> uh, you know, subscription revenue. Um, but if you look at SaaS models within healthcare, there aren't that many, you know, right. and certainly not that many in the UK. Uh, and so interestingly, there's been, I think of my last, I made three investments through this kind of COVID period over the summer, um, and of my last kind of six or seven investments, most of them have been SaaS businesses. So how do we bring the learnings from, you know, so bringing software as a service into healthcare? Uh, and how do we get to, you know, remove some of the inefficiency and it's coming, you know, it's been a slow build and we're, you know, healthcare is probably, you know, 10 years behind non-healthcare businesses, but I think there's not a huge opportunity for SaaS thinking to come into healthcare and, uh, to really increase efficiency uh, and decrease costs substantially, uh, which, as you know, is a big focus for for health systems everywhere in the world, including uh, the NHS. Indeed, and I'm intrigued. You might not, we might not want to say who the investments are, but I am intrigued as to who the customer is for those SaaS models that you look favorably upon. Because as we know, it comes down to who's going to pay for stuff quite often. And I know that so many entrepreneurs and future entrepreneurs and potential entrepreneurs listening, people that might have ideas are always looking for ways to make their ideas work. And often for me, seemingly it often comes down to is anybody going to pay for this and who is going to pay for this? It then obviously becomes about delivering value to them. So I'm interested, yeah. I suppose, in those deals as to who the customer is and where the money's coming from. Uh, that's a great question. You know, you and I always ask that question of, of companies that we <laughs> see. Um, you know, I think the, the SaaS companies that I've looked at and invested in mostly are focused either in the private sector in the UK yeah. first, um, so there's a company called Credentially who is doing kind of doctor onboarding um, and yeah. well, actually a clinician in boarding, um, which obviously needs to be done if, by every healthcare organization. Um, and there's something like 47 checks you have to do to, to, uh, to hire a nurse in this country. It's, you know, their DBS and their medical credentials, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, it's a hugely inefficient process and it takes weeks and, you know, if you're a staffing agency in healthcare, 70% of the people that start at the top of the funnel drop out by the bottom. It's just because, you know, so much emailing and so much annoyance, it's just kind of like, why do I even bother? Yeah. Um, so they're solving a big problem for all healthcare employers. But interestingly, the COVID situation has hugely accelerated their growth because, um, you know, the COVID task force and 111 and all these, you know, they need to staff up very quickly Good point. to address this increased demand. And so they say, well, what, what systems are out there to help us do that? 
uh, and credentially has had a big uplift and is working with a bunch of NHS organizations now where, you know, before they were more focused in the, in the private sector. Makes so that's an example. Uh, and then, you know, others um, are focused maybe in private fertility. There's a company called Salve Technologies that I've invested in. Um, and then a couple of us based, you know, all the UK companies that I've worked with, you know, and most of the European companies that I've talked to have, have an eye towards the U S eventually, you know, it's sort yeah. of how do we establish ourselves in, in our home country and then the largest healthcare in the world, healthcare market in the world beckons. Um, yeah. and you know, so it's, uh, <clears throat> it's interesting that obviously the payer systems are incredibly different in the U S. Um, and this idea of, um, being able to translate these types of models, into different healthcare systems. I think with software uh, and or kind of hardware and software combined, it's just much easier. They're much more kind of broadly applicable. Um, for example, you know, if you're doing, we talked about Grifol earlier, if we're doing neuro rehab, it's basically done the same way in the US and here, but often the payer structure is different. Um, but it's a great way to do remote uh, interventions. And there's now a whole new payment structure in the US and likely coming to the UK as well where a therapist can actually get paid for doing remote rehab with their patient, you know, over zoom or Skype or whatever platform they're using. Uh, and there's, there's tools that are needed to be able to do that effectively. Um, and so these types of models are evolving, you know, in the middle of this pandemic uh, where, you know, as you talked about earlier, telemedicine, these are all tools that make a huge amount of sense, um, but they won't stick unless there's an economic model behind it, yes. an economic incentive behind it. Um, human beings, we respond to incentives, you know, and making money is an incentive. So we have to figure out how this works. You know, how do people make money in a way that, or, or how do systems become more efficient and payer systems adapt to these new technologies? Because I think we all kind of intuitively, intuitively understand that these are more efficient ways to deliver care, uh, but they have to work in the, in the kind of payer mindset as well. So that's a, it's a big area of that we look at, you know, as we look at investments and, you know, who's going to pay is, is again, one of those key questions it certainly is man i think we're gonna end up asking that question every single day for the rest of our lives the more startups that we meet and uh ways that we critique the system but listen mate it's been an absolute pleasure having you on what's the best way for people to get in touch with you or ori or if they've got a pitch for you in terms of an investment how's well, yeah what's the best way for people to contact you or ori biotech um, my contact details is on my LinkedIn profile. It's probably the easiest way. Yeah. Um, but my email is Jason Foster at health equity consulting.com. That's what I use for my investments. So anyone have any questions or I'm happy to look at business plans and, you know, act as a sounding board for, for invest, uh, for entrepreneurs. And, you know, this is the fun stuff. So happy to help where I can. Amazing. And Ori biotech. Uh, yep. Yeah, Ori biotech, Jason Foster at Ori biotech. Dot com uh, and you know really interesting things happening with Ori. So stay tuned for more. We're going to have a, a couple of news releases coming out over the next uh, few weeks about the fundraise and other interesting developments. So stay tuned for that. Amazing. Thank you so much, sir. It's been great. Thanks, James. Really appreciate it. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening and making it all the way to the end of this episode. Remember to subscribe, rate us and leave a review and you can head to the description of this episode to follow me on all of my social media so you don't miss out on any of the latest health tech content.